friends and colleagues, and welcome to episode 102 of Dermosphere, the podcast by dermatologists, for dermatologists, and for the dermatologically curious. I am one of your hosts. My name is Luke Johnson. I am a pediatric dermatologist and a general dermatologist with the University of Utah. And joining me, of course, is... This is Michelle Tarbox. I'm an associate professor of dermatology and dermatopathology at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in beautiful, sunny Lubbock, Texas. And you also control the pimping bell who's hanging out next to you. There it is. The pimping bell exists to highlight especially question-worthy content, so pay attention when the pimping bell calls. Also joining us today, we have member of Team Dermosphere, Michael Birdsall. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Do you want to start by introducing yourself? Yeah, my name is Michael Birdsall. I'm a third-year medical student at the University of Utah, um, and I'm going to be applying for dermatology in the fall here. So very excited to be here. Also super excited to meet um, Dr. Tarbox in the flesh online, I guess, and also <laughs> the pimping bell. It, the anticipation was killing me for the pimping bell. So. Great to meet you. Well, Michael, we really appreciate your help with the podcast, and it's always exciting to have one of our members of Team Dermosphere on to talk about something they're interested in. And Michael, you and I had a chance to work together in clinic fairly recently, and some questions came up, including like, can we stop psoriasis biologics? We talked about that in our last episode. And something else we wondered was, is the palm or the hand, really 1% of somebody's total body surface area? And you kindly looked into some articles about it and thought we should share one today. So why don't you introduce the article and we'll let you get rolling into it. Yeah, for sure. So um, the title of this article is The Surface Area of the Hand and the Palm for Estimating Percentage of Total Body Surface Area Results of a Meta-Analysis. Um, this was published in 2013, um, and I tried to, I know that Luke likes to do kind of what's happening in, in the year. So in 2013, um, Obama was inaugurated for his second term as president. Lance Armstrong just admitted to doping, and also top billboard songs were Thrift Shop by Macklemore, um, Blurred <laughs> Lines by Robin Thicke, and then also Harlem Shake by Bauer. I think Harlem Shake probably should have been number one, but it was Thrift Shop instead. So... <laughs> That's kind of what was happening in 2013. Um, the authors for this article were Julia Rhodes, C. Clay, and Michael Phillips. And this is from Australia, and it was published in the British Journal of Dermatology. So um, to give a little bit of background, um, we use the hand surface or the palmar surface to um, for important things like calculating the total body surface area in burn patients for Parkland formula, that's often used. There's increasing use of various um, area and severity indices like the psoriasis area and severity index um, that Luke was talking about earlier. Um, and also we use it to assess for indications for the use of drugs, um, including biologics, things like that. Um, we even sometimes use it for criteria for uh, disability, depending on which country uh, you're in. But that can be something that So you're that we... suggesting it could be important to calculate it accurately. <laughs> uh, yeah, it could be. Yeah. These are all things that I think make it something that we should care about. So um, the goals of this study were basically to look at, um, are we using the hand surface as an accurate representation of total body surface area or the palmar surface area as a good percentage of body surface area. Um, and then also seeing if there were any variabilities with like age, sex, BMI, ethnic group, that sort of thing. Um, okay, before you get into it, let's pause for a sec and we'll yeah. each say what we learned. So I remember learning that the patient's palm was 1% of their body surface area. Michelle, what do you remember learning? I remember learning that it was actually the entire hand, like all with all the fingers together. That's what I was taught. And Michael, and, were you taught anything before we started looking into this? I was, but I feel like I really was taught conflicting stuff. So I feel like I was taught that it was the palmar surface and then also the hand surface area that Michelle was talking about. So I had conflicting information, and I think that's what spurred me to actually look for these articles when, when we were talking about it in clinic. Excellent. Well, let's learn all together. <laughs> all right. So um, this 
study was done by doing a systematic literature search of PubMed, uh, EMBase, and the Cochrane Controlled Trials Register. And they looked through all of these. They came up with 14 articles that met um, criteria being original research um, and also not duplicated research um, focusing on assessment of the surface area of the palm or surface of the hand or the palm. So um, I don't know how much we want to get into statistical methods, um, but they used several different things. Not at all. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> value of less than 0 0.05 is what we're looking for for significant, and I'll leave it there. Um, so we have these 14 studies, and they had a wide variety of characteristics, 30 to 80, or sorry, 30 to 800 sample size, wide range of ages. Um, a lot of studies were European-derived populations, but later there were other studies that were um, paying special attention to like BMI or other ethnic groups, those kinds of things. Um, and the results showed that hand surface area percentage is 0.872% of total body surface area, which is about 13% lower than the accepted 1% value for all adults. Um, and this was statistically significant. They found that the estimation for the Palmer surface area percentage for all adults was 0.497 and it was not statistically significant, um, or there was not a statistically significant difference from the accepted 0.5% value. So common literature was saying that the Palmer surface was 0.5% and that the hand surface area was 1%. Um, and that this meta-analysis basically said the hand surface area is not super accurate as far as 1%, but the Palmer surface area is pretty close to 0.5%. And that was for just in general, period. Um, and then there were a lot of changes or differences for like, if it's for males or female hands versus palms, those kinds of things, and also children and also ages of children. So less than five, five to nine, 10 to 13, all of these were different. Um, I thought it was pretty striking. It said in 10 to 13 year olds, the hand surface area percent is 1.71. Um, and the Palmer surface area is 0.66. So especially in kids, if we're using this in teenagers, preteens, it can be pretty inaccurate if we're, if we're saying that one or the palm is 1% or the hand surface even is 1%. So, um, they also found that there were differences in BMI. So the, the larger the BMI, the more inaccurate the results were. And also there were some differences in ethnic groups um, with Chinese and those identifying as Indian being closer to one, but Europeans being around 0.79%, um, which I thought was really interesting. So mostly the major finding is to say that um, hand surface area is not 1% of total body surface area. Um, it's influenced by a number of factors, age, sex, ethnic, ethnicity, and BMI. And there were even changes of um, interaction between different identifiers like BMI and ethnicity that further complicate things. So um, Palmer surface area being less studied um, did have a statistically, or sorry, did show that 0.5% um, was, was more accurate than the hand surface area being 1%. So... Um, I thought it was interesting because in the in the conclusion, the authors basically say, hey, we're not totally sure that we can extrapolate that this is causing problems clinically, like the clinical impact of the accuracy. We're not sure if it's making a huge difference and we don't know that we can say much on that. Um, but in my mind, I feel like this article tells me that if I want to, like if I'm doing a posse score, I would likely look at the palmer surface being um, just the palm without the fingers. Um, and calling that 0.5% of the body surface area and calculating it from there. Um, but that's kind of what I took away from the article. It sounds like we need to do a little bit more research to see if there's actually a uh, clinical impact with our inaccuracy here um, and, and things like that. So, Thanks, Michael. That was a great summary. And uh, I guess I've been doing it wrong for the past seven years. So the palm <laughs> is half a percent and the hand is like, 0. 0.8 to 0.9%, which, you know, is that close enough to 1% for government work? Some of <laughs> us are employed by the government. That's fair. What do you think, Michelle? Is this going to adjust how you calculate these things? You know, probably. I'll, I'll have to be honest. I think that I use some of the, like, body surface area, like, calculators a little bit more frequently. 
um, the hand or palmar unit really only kind of comes into play if you have very spotty disease. So I think it'll change some things the, with what I do, but you know, sometimes I'm just adding up, okay, they have got the surface area of the back and the surface area of the extremities. How much is that total? I find myself calculating body surface area a lot, especially for my atopic dermatitis patients, because it kind of gives me a handle on how bad their disease is. Are they a candidate for some of these systemics? And then are they getting better after I see them next time? And sometimes I use like I mentally come up with an idea of their palm and kind of spot it all over their skin to gum up with it. And sometimes I just kind of eyeball them and do my best remembering that people have a tendency to kind of overestimate body surface area. And it probably is all kind of fine for clinical practice, right? Like we're dermatologists. We're used to looking at people's skin. We're probably like pretty decent at figuring this out. But I think it's helpful to get this article so that we can be, you know, even better because we should be the best at this. Well, for me, what I usually use is what I think a lot of people probably use, which is the rough rule of nines. So um, any large unit you can kind of think of as a 9%. So like the entire head, so the back and the front and the top of the head and the neck, that's 9%. And then the chest is 9%. The front abdomen is 9%. The lower back is 9%. The upper back is 9%. Each leg is 9% and each arm is 4.5%. So the arms are smaller, so they just get like half of the 9 But um, that works pretty well for calculating disease um, if it's more diffuse. And I think that now adjusting for the, you know, palm is a 0.5% may be able to help kind of calculate those more broadly distributed smaller spots. I thought each arm was 9% and each lower extremity was 18%. Well, I'm sorry, the front and the back side together. Yeah. No, but the front and the back side is 9%. So just like the the front of the trunk. Yeah. So, so the front side is 9%. The back side is 9%. Does that make sense? Like the front of the leg is 9%, the back of the leg is 9%. So together it's 18% for each extremity. And then for each arm, it's 4.5% for the front side or 4.5% for the back side. And altogether it's 9%. Yes. Okay. We're aligned there. I didn't explain that well. Yeah, sorry. I didn't explain that as well as I thought I did. Well, thanks, Michael. Appreciate it. Anything you do on social media or if people want to learn more about you, can they find you anywhere or any final thoughts you want to leave with our listeners? I wish I had a good answer for you, but I really only use social media to follow soccer content. So I, that's not a good spot. So <laughs> I, I don't. Maybe but it's I'll be coming safer to a res- as a medical student to not be on social media. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, I'll be coming to a residency program near you, hopefully, probably in the next, um, you know, six or nine months interviewing. So hopefully that, that'll be the case. I hope so, too. And Michael's great. So everybody look at him real closely and you'll be happy with what you see. All right, Michael, thanks again for helping us out and for coming on today, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. We'll see you. Well, one of my favorite things to kind of relax with, enjoy, is like British comedy. I love, for example, Monty Python. And they had a show where they talked about, and now for something completely different. And so we're going to do something a little bit like that today because we're going to do a review of an article that's a little outside of our normal wheelhouse. This is more of an editorial piece. And it, I think, highlights the importance of good journalism, especially when it comes to kind of untangling the intricacies of how the corporations that actually govern a lot of how we deliver healthcare function. So this is an excellent article from Medscape talking about the policies of United Healthcare and how they can sometimes be harmful to patients. The idols, so just the, to be clear, this is not like a study out of a journal that we're talking about. This is, as you say, like journalism. It's an article from, I guess, not a newspaper. What is a newspaper? But from the website Medscape. And it's and not specifically der- about dermatology either, but still something that we felt was worth highlighting. And I I have journalists in my family. Two of my sisters have been journalists. And the importance of journalism is that it holds up a mirror to to society and reveals some truths that are often hidden. So the title of this article is, We're Still Going to Say No, Inside United Healthcare's Effort to Deny Coverage to the Chronically Ill. And the authors are David Armstrong, Patrick Rooker, and Maya Miller. And this came out in February of 2023. It discusses the care of a student who was attending Penn State University who had 
previously been taken care of under his parents' insurance plan, but when he came to the university, as many students do, he enrolled in their version of the healthcare plan. I have personal experience with this kind of healthcare plan, so I, I have... I understand the intricacies of these things a little bit more because I've delved into them personally myself. The insurance healthcare plans are often lucrative accounts for insurance companies because these are young, relatively healthy patients. They're paying really decent premiums. And for the most part, the company's not shelling out a lot of dough because these are healthy kids. They go to the doctor if they get a sore throat or if they break something, but most of them are in the prime of their health. So this article covers the treatment of one patient who unfortunately was not as healthy as most college students. His name was Christopher McNaughton. He shared his story, which is trying to help shine a light on what these insurance companies are doing. So he had a very severe case of ulcerative colitis that had caused arthritis, diarrhea, severe pain, life-threatening blood clots, and his medical bills were nearly $2 million a year. Because of this, his account got flagged as a high-dollar account, and a nurse that features heavily in this article named Victoria Cavanaugh um, started to intervene in efforts to contain the cost of his care. What is chilling in this article is the flippancy with which these um, personnel of this insurance company treat human lives and the corporational sleight of hand that is used to conceal the way they really make decisions. So the account was identified as high dollar. And so they reviewed it to try to determine if there was any way they could quit spending so much money on this one person. Because as you'll see throughout the course of the article, the viewpoint of the insurance company and their point of focus is entirely cost containment, even though the messaging they were giving to the patient and the family was, we're worried about your safety. These are unproven drug combinations or drug levels. And the message they give to broadly society is, we're trying to contain the cost of healthcare for other members. Now, that only works, that kind of obfuscation only works if you don't do the background research to figure out things like the fact that United Healthcare had a profit of $20 billion in the year that they were denying this patient health care. And they had revenues of 20, $324 billion. Their CEO was being paid $17.9 million the year that this happened. So, you know, the blaming of sick patients for the cost of health care is a smokescreen. It is a huge profit industry, and profit is their bottom line. So in this patient's care, um, the account was identified as high dollar and then was sent for review to a physician who does not practice medicine um, currently, nor does that person do um, that particular type of care, so gastroenterology. And the care was then declined for reasons named as not medically necessary. And as a part of the discovery process from the ultimate lawsuit resulting from this patient's family trying to get his medications covered, things such as voice recordings of phone calls were uncovered in which, and this hurts my soul to say this, these people were laughing at the fact that they were going to deny health care to this person who was incapacitated by his disease. And they were also making fun of the patient's family for screaming and yelling and throwing tantrums, trying to get this patient's care covered. So about 200 million Americans are covered by private health care, and insurance companies reject one in seven claims for treatment. Most people, when they have to fight an insurance company, give up. So a study found that Americans file formal appeals in only 0.1% of claims denied by insurers under the Affordable Health Care Act. There's also wide discretion for the insurers in what is covered in their policies. There are some basic services that are mandated by federal and state law, but insurance companies can often deny claims for what they deem not medically necessary. And when it comes to even providing those basic services mandated by federal and state law, they can get very creative. When I was a medical student, our medical student healthcare plan had for well woman coverage, not breast exams, not pap smears, mammograms, mammograms for 20 something year old medical students. I couldn't get a pap smear. I couldn't get a pelvic exam, but if I needed one, I guess I could have gotten a mammogram. So I actually had to privately fund my own healthcare so that I could go see a doctor and get on birth control so that I could get married and not get pregnant in the middle of medical school. And this whole circumstance kind of brought to my eyes the fact that insurance companies are masters of sleight, and, sleight of hand. So Do you mind the, if I just summarize the story here? Sure. So this poor kid had horrible ulcerative colitis and was basically spending all of his day in the bathroom, couldn't attend his classes and stuff. He saw many different... GI experts. There was one who finally got him under control with what sounds like super high doses of a couple different biologic drugs. And so that he was able to go back to mostly a normal life, but these were expensive drugs plus the high doses. And so that's why these United Healthcare folks were like, Hey, 
he's on super high doses. Those are not the approved doses. Let's deny him coverage. And then there's a lot of back and forth. They have outside doctors take a look at these claims. One outside doctor said, yeah, these haven't been proven. And then there was another doctor who said, actually, I think this is probably working for him and we should keep paying for it. And then United Healthcare was like, oh, we didn't mean to talk to you anyway. So we're just not going to tell anybody about what you said. And we're going to stick with this unproven, too high doses kind of stuff even though those were the doses that had been working for him and were prescribed by a gastroenterology world expert. Mm-hmm. So United Healthcare does not come out of this article looking very good. Reading it, you just feel this sense of outrage that they claim to be doing right for the patient, but what is obviously the case, at least based on the reading of this article and the way it was written, is that they're just looking out for their bottom line. And I don't think any of us really need a reminder that the business of business is business. And it also got me thinking that a for-profit health insurance system just doesn't like make a lot of sense. Because if you say to a company, hey, you're trying to make profits, right? Yeah, I do it by selling insurance. Oh, what's the best way you can make profit? By not paying for people's medical care. But your job is to pay for people's medical care. Yeah, but we make our money by not paying for it. Like, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. So I certainly see both sides of the coin. A lot of these drugs like are at least the list price is way too high and somebody's got to make sure that it doesn't get completely out of control. But certainly based on this article, it doesn't seem like insurance companies are the ones to do it. Mm-hmm. And the things that I think were most informative to me was the fact that the treating physician who was a world renowned expert working at the, one of the prestige institutions in this country, their discussion with the peer to peer was misrepresented. And the peer-to-peer discussion, they had sort of a hearsay situation where the nurse manager that was part of this care um, actually, in her statement, misunderstood. But they said that the treating physician said it was okay to titrate down the doses of the drugs and to try to simplify the regimen when that was the exact opposite of what that physician said. That physician said, this patient has tried those drugs at those concentrations before. They did not control the disease. This is the treatment that is necessary for his control. So to me, what that let me know is, you know, contemporaneous note taking or something to make sure that what I've communicated to the um, health insurance company is documented. I also want to, to applaud one of the physicians working for United Healthcare, um, Dr. Kumar, who's a gastroenterologist that was also involved in the review, actually did the right thing. He did the right job where he looked at the patient as an individual. And he said in this individual patient's case, because of the severity of their disease and the lack of efficacy of prior treatment, the current therapeutic regimen is appropriate and should be continued. So it's not every employee for United Healthcare that's a bad actor, and it's certainly not everything about the corporation, but its focus is indeed on profit and not on healthcare. Um, So it allows an environment where people who are less inclined to care about individual human lives can make bad decisions that have sad outcomes. And I also know that many of these large companies like this will incentivize their employees to cut costs, to you know, improve profit margins like any other business. And we have to remember that the insurance company, as, as a physician, we're not all of us educated well in the mechanics of business. But I think that this was very eye-opening. I thought it was well-written. I think the kind of discovery process that happens when people do decide to kind of fight back against these blanket denials for necessary medications can be quite revelatory as it was in this case. And it just highlights our need to, first of all, document everything that we say because we can be misrepresented, but also delve deeper into the process when a patient is denied, because often it's for reasons that don't have anything to do with medical decision-making. That also makes you start thinking and reveals the opacity of our current healthcare system. So if you start thinking things like, well, why are these drugs so expensive? Then there's like not a single reason for it. There's like many reasons. And part of it is research and development into making drugs that work well for our patients. But part of it is, again, sort of, as far as I can tell, corporate smoke screens and wheeling and dealing kind of stuff. So I was listening to another podcast where they were talking about how jacked up the prices are compared to how much it costs the pharmaceutical company to make it. So the example they used was a matinib, which is a chemotherapeutic agent. 
And if you apparently just buy it wholesale from the pharmaceutical company, if one was able to do that, it would cost like $30 or something. But of course, it's like $2,000 if you want to just go to a pharmacy and buy it out of pocket. That's apparently called the list price. And then these entities known as pharmacy benefit managers or PBMs are often held up to be sort of the evilest of the evil empires in, <laughs> at work here, because what they apparently do is claim to give you a really good deal. So they say, hey, good news. I negotiated 70% off this imatinib for you. And you say, oh, that's great. So how much does it cost? And they were like, well, it was originally $2,000, but with 70% off, it's only going to cost you $600. But in fact, you could have got it for $30 from the pharmaceutical company, perhaps. And I started wondering where the list price of the drug comes from. And I don't know. That other podcast that went into some detail about this sort of didn't really mention that. I think the implication was that there's some kind of collaboration between pharmacy benefit managers and some other entities that put the list price at $2,000, even though it's way more than what it costs the pharmaceutical company to make it, even if you include R&D. So it's all pretty frustrating to work in a system that's so screwed up and also has so many wealthy entities that can lobby for their interests at the expense of patients. It does make one a little bit discouraged. But I, I do think that good reporting like this really helps because you know, this particular kind of behavior by a certain a set of people in this corporation, not necessarily the entire corporation writ large, it's frankly embarrassing, right? Like you wouldn't want this attached to your corporation's reputation. Um, I think the other lesson is corporations going to corporate. So, you know, there was a good example recently with the loss of availability of eggs in the, um, in the free market and the cost of eggs increasing. But if you look at the major suppliers of eggs in the country, their profit margins increased significantly over what you would expect just because they raised the prices. And it's kind of a no-brainer. You raise the prices and you know, to a certain point, you get more of an income. But these dueling forces do sometimes place our patients in the crosshairs and informing ourselves, I think, is very important. All right. Well, let's get back into kind of our normal stuff. So uh, I want to talk about jack inhibitors. Woo. So the first one I want to talk about here is entitled Malignancy Risk with Tofacitinib versus TNF Inhibitors in Rheumatoid Arthritis Results from the Open Label Randomized Controlled Oral Surveillance Trial. And this article was out of the Annals of Rheumatologic Disease. And the authors include Jeffrey Curtis and Juan Gomez Reino. And you might remember the oral surveillance study because we discussed it in episode 79. And this particular study that I'm talking about today is a breakdown slash subgroup analysis slash more focused look at particular outcomes in that study. So as a reminder, that study, the oral surveillance study, was a study of patients with rheumatoid arthritis, and they all had certain other characteristics as well. They were all age 50 or over. They all had at least one or more additional cardiovascular risk factors. So rheumatoid arthritis itself is a cardiovascular risk factor. These patients all had another one. They were all also taking methotrexate. And then where they differed was that some of them were taking tofacitinib and some of them were taking a TNF inhibitor. And this study that I'm talking about today was sponsored by Pfizer, by the way, which I believe also sponsored the oral surveillance study or were required to make it by the FDA. Um, and I think it was one of the Pfizer reps in our office who uh, clued me into this study also. So the major limitation, of course, is the time frame. So the oral surveillance study lasted about four years, and we're looking at malignancy. So probably we're going to need long-term real-world data, perhaps from registries, to really get at outcomes like malignancies. But what this looked at was, again, these malignancy outcomes. And that interests me specifically because I don't want to give kids lymphoma. And I'm a mm -hmm. pediatric dermatologist. So I prescribe JAK inhibitors to kids. And the original oral surveillance study reported a hazard ratio of 1.48 of tofacitinib compared to TNF inhibitors across their population. So reminder what that means. So let's round it up to from 1.48 to 1.5. So hazard ratio of 1.5 basically means if you are on tofacitinib, you are 1.5 times more likely to have a malignancy than if you were on a TNF inhibitor. Now, there are confidence intervals, as we know. Confidence intervals are usually 95% confidence intervals, which means, okay, 
we got the statistics, we crunched the numbers, and the hazard ratio is 1.5. But because of the vagaries of the real world, we don't know that it's exactly 1.5, but we're at least 95% confident that it falls between these two numbers. That's the confidence interval. And in this case, the confidence interval is 1.04 to 2.09, which is fairly narrow, so that's good, but also almost includes the number one. So if the hazard ratio is one, then your risk of developing a malignancy is the same, depending on which one you're on. But the hazard ratio is 1.5, and the confidence interval almost included one. And again, this was only four years. But overall, though, this particular analysis here shows pretty good news, especially for me, who treats kids. So risk factors for developing a malignancy seems like those that are otherwise associated with developing a malignancy, like a history of smoking, older age, and increasing cardiovascular risk. I think you might talk more about that in the study you're going to talk about next, Michelle. But apparently mm -hmm. in recent years, there's been an acknowledgement that people with cardiovascular risk factors also have an increased risk of malignancy, probably because similar things that increase your risk of cardiovascular disease also increase your risk of malignancy, like smoking and old age and so on. And my patients generally are not older age, generally haven't been smoking, and generally don't have a very high cardiovascular risk. Also, the study showed that with higher doses of methotrexate, like over 15 milligrams versus less than 15 milligrams weekly, increased your risk of malignancy. Again, perhaps um, your immune surveillance is important to help prevent malignancy. So pretty good for me who wants to treat kids, but we're going to need to have like a bunch of people on these drugs over the course of like 10 to 20 years to kind of feel more confident about it. So other important data that came out of this, the risk of malignancy was the same in both groups, the tofacitinib group and the TNF inhibitor group until 18 months into the disease when it started to diverge. Though uh, that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, I'll take it safely for 18 months and my risk isn't increased, right? Because malignancy <laughs> takes time to develop. So maybe that's why it took 18 months for them to start to diverge. And if you look at this after 18 months, across all groups, the hazard ratio compared, again, tofacitinib versus TNF inhibitors was 1.9. So if you don't include the first 18 months, the hazard ratio does go up a little, suggesting there might be something real here. Reassuringly, though, if you're taking the lower dose of tofacitinib, which is 5 milligrams BID, the hazard ratio was like it was before, 1.5, but the confidence interval includes 1.0 which sometimes is a deal breaker. There's you know, at least some reasonable percent chance that what you're seeing is not real after all, and just sort of vagaries of the statistics. Number needed to harm is another statistic that we've sometimes talked about. So that is a statistical technique to determine how many people you would need to treat with a particular drug to cause this bad side effect that you're looking at. So in this case, a malignancy. So based on the numbers, you would have to treat 55 additional patients over five years with tofacitinib instead of a TNF inhibitor to cause one increased malignancy. Obviously, we don't want to cause increased malignancies, but it's always helpful, I think, to know the numbers, which does not mean that I can safely treat 54 people with tofacitinib <laughs> and not have to worry about anybody developing a malignancy, but this sort of is another way to think about it. I was worried about lymphoma specifically because that's one of the diseases that kids get. But fortunately, the data is very good um, in terms of the hazard ratio confidence interval crossing one. The actual hazard ratio was five, which is not good, but the confidence interval is 0.65 to 40. So we have a 95% confidence that it's somewhere between 0.65 and 40 which is a huge range and just not that helpful. So probably there's weren't enough lymphomas to figure this out. So we'll still have to rely on this registry data. Um, other specific things for dermatologists that might be of interest is the non-melanoma skin cancer risk. So again, this is all tofacitinib versus TNF inhibitor. Hazard ratio for non-melanoma skin cancer was 2.0. For BCC, it was 1.4, but the confidence interval included one. And for SCC, the hazard ratio was 2.3. And the confidence interval, again, did not include one. So probably this increased risk for non-melanoma skin cancer is all tied into squamous cell carcinoma. So your patient's on a JAK inhibitor. You might want to scrutinize them carefully for that. Good news is for melanoma, the hazard ratio is 0 0.2, hmm. which would means that tofacitinib would have a protective effect over a TNF inhibitor. 
the consonants interval does include one, 0.04 to 1.04, but still, that was kind of interesting. Why would that be the case? I don't know. By the way, patients with rheumatoid arthritis have an increased risk over, of cancer over the general population. Their risk of cancer is about 10% higher. And also a reminder that none of this stuff means that tofacitinib causes cancer. Mm -hmm. So for example, it could just be not as protective as a TNF inhibitor at preventing cancer, for example. So that's another common way that some people might misinterpret some of this data. There's a nice quote here as well. Increased risk of skin cancer in patients with rheumatoid arthritis treated with low-dose methotrexate has been previously established. Increased risk of non-melanoma skin cancer with methotrexate has also been demonstrated. So we discussed melanoma and methotrexate specifically in episode 94, and it looked like the chances of melanoma were statistically a little greater on methotrexate, but probably from a practical purpose did not matter. Uh, but patients on methotrexate, you do want to be looking at them for skin cancer. COX inhibitors, so those are like an NSAID pain reliever that patients with RA might take. They are associated with a decreased risk of non-melanoma skin cancer, apparently, but they note emerging evidence suggesting that NSAIDs, including COX inhibitors, may decrease the risk of some cancers, but increase the risk of others. So don't put everybody on ibuprofen because of this. So finally, their conclusion is, taken together, these findings indicate that patients taking tofacitinib or a TNF inhibitor or older, age 65 plus, have ever smoked and have a history of chronic lung disease may be at increased risk of malignancies. Which is not a super strong statement. There's a lot of waffle language in there. But it's sort of reassuring for the patient population that I treat, and I think most other dermatologists treat, even if they're being adults, that it's your older patients and the ones with these current risk factors that you really have to be worried about when it comes to cancer. So I think overall reassuring, and when I talk to my patients and their parents about it, I'm planning to cast this in a reassuring light, but of course say we're probably not going to know for sure for 20 or 30 years. And by then, you know, perhaps the sun will have enveloped the earth and it won't matter. <laughs> it sounds like a They Might Be Giants song or something like that. I think it was the article you discussed. It's put me in a negative frame of mind. I'm normally I'm optimistic. I'm sorry. I know you're such an optimistic person. I'm sorry, I should say in 20 or 30 years, we'll have developed something way more awesome than this. And we can nobody will have to deal with atopic dermatitis or malignancy at all because medical science will have advanced so far. Or maybe benevolent aliens will descend. Who knows? I mean, we can't really predict the future. The name of the alien race will be the Deus Ex Machinas. <laughs> I thought it was, I thought you were going to call them the Sotik two or something as like a you know connection with the uh, jack inhibitors. So I have a kind of related article um, to discuss. You're done, right? I'm done. Did you awesome. want to talk about it anymore, or you want to talk about this related article? I also briefly. Sponsored by Pfizer. Yeah, I briefly want to cover this. We are not sponsored by Pfizer. The article is sponsored by Pfizer. Not sponsored um, yet. Uh, <laughs> That's what we're supposed to say, so, apparently. Okay. <laughs> so I have here an article out of the British Medical Journal by authors Christina Charles Showman and Zoltan Seznak. Nope, Sorry, I, I think this right. was published in the Annals of Rheumatologic Disease. Why does it say BMJ at the bottom? I think the Annals of Rheumatologic Disease must be uh, sub Ah, okay, we got it. So it is the, well, and, and we do at Team Dermosphere like to diversify our reading. We read outside of our um, discipline because I think that sometimes people have different sort of storage houses of information and it behooves us to see what's in all of them. So this is a journal out of the, Annals of Rheumatologic Disease, apparently a subsidiary of the British Medical Journal, with the authors Christina Charles Showman. You did that to give me a second chance at Zoltan's last name, didn't you? And then Zoltan, who says, nope, says connects. That is not going to be right. But Dr. S, we applaud you and your work, um, amongst a myriad of other excellent authors, I am sure. So this is looking at the risk of major adverse MACE events, so cardiovascular events, with tofacitinib versus TNF inhibitors in patients with RI, RA with or without a history of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. And this is part of the oral surveillance study. I think one of the important things that this article highlights is how far we've come in clinical trials. So back in the day, back in my day, like when I was just first in training, we talked about the problem that all trials were done on healthy, white, young to middle-aged men. Um, and usually people without a lot of comorbidities, often patients who hadn't had a lot of treatments for whatever condition was being investigated. And we've progressed now as a society to understand that not all human bodies respond the same to every medication and that we need to look at distinct patient populations to make sure that we're giving 
equitable consideration and data to all different kinds of patients. So representations in terms of ethnic diversity, in terms of socioeconomic status, and here in terms of cardiovascular disease risk. So they purposefully included patients that had cardiovascular disease risk and had a specific focus on atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. These were RA patients greater than 50 years of age with more than one cardiovascular risk factor who were randomized to either tofacitinib 5 or 10 milligrams two times daily or a TNF inhibitor. And then they calculated hazard ratios for the overall population and by history of atherosclerotic vascular disease. So this is very similar to the article I discussed in that it's, again, looking closely at this oral surveillance study data to break it out and see if we can more correctly identify patients at risk. And I'm going to really drill down and focus on this because this is a weedy article and I don't want to get buried in the weeds. But basically, in patients who had atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, there was an excess of risk for MACE events. Now, what's interesting to me is we talked earlier about hazard ratios and how they shouldn't capture the number one. In this particular circumstance, this one finding that they're focusing on does capture that number, uh, but I still think that the authors reasonably represent it as appropriate to consider. So the patients that had um, the tofacitinib 5 milligrams twice daily had an 8.3% incidence of MACE events versus 10 milligrams two times daily was a 7.7% incidence of MACE events, and then TNF inhibitors was 4.2% incidence of MACE events. So when they looked at the combined dosages of tofacitinib up against TNF inhibitors, they found a hazard ratio of 1.98, so around two times the increased risk over patients treated with TNF inhibitors but their confidence interval was 0.95 to 4.14. So it's close to the significant interval, but it is not right on that. And that's reflected in their p-value, which is 0.196. So if you remember that a significant p-value is generally considered to be less than 0.05, it doesn't quite reach that metric. Um, When they were looking at other events and other subpopulations, they weren't able to identify a statistically significant excess risk. But I think the authors do a great job of conveying the point that this is something to consider, but not a reason to not use this medication. It's also something that needs further study and that the overall elevation of risk appears to be low, but real. This is a post-authorization study. So this happens sometimes after the FDA has approved a medication, they'll require a post-authorization study to look for types of side effects that take longer to occur and things that might be less common in the general population. Other important things that came out of this article are in February 2019, the tofacitinib 10 milligram twice daily dose was reduced to 5 milligrams twice daily after the Daily Safety Monitoring Board noticed an increased frequency of pulmonary embolism in patients on tofacitinib 10 milligrams twice daily versus TNF inhibitors. So I think that's a nice little piece of pimpable content. Um, I think also... You know, interesting was the fact that patients had um, MACE events even in the placebo-treated arm, and doing a placebo treatment arm in a condition like RA is very difficult to do, because not treating a progressive destructive disease like RA has got ethical questionability to it. So that's one of the reasons these studies are hard, because we have to compete, we have to compare them to um, kind of variable types of studies that aren't always directly com- comparable, because we can't really take people off of drug. Um, the number of events overall in the entire study population was low. I think it was also important to talk about the fact that they did purposefully include patients who had cardiovascular disease to accurately represent the patient population that is treated with these medications. The consideration of utilizing JAK inhibitors gets more complicated when we think about the fact that they all impact different receptors. And some of them are stronger inhibitors, and some of them are less strong, and some of them are more precise. So tofacitinib um, really primarily hits uh, JAK1 and 3, and it has some effect on JAK2 and less effect on TIC2. So TOF I kind of think of as like, you know, 3 with, with the T. So you can think about it. It hits all three of those JAK receptors, but it doesn't hit the second one. JAK2 doesn't get hit quite as hard. Um, other important things that I think brought forward from this article include the fact that um, like Luke was pointing out, many medications that we use to manage chronic arthritis, such as NSAIDs, also have some potential elevation of MACE risk. And the reason that they think this is, is that we're we're intervening in a very intricate, very, intricate, very complicated, long-evolved system that is evolved to protect us from pathogens, to protect us from our own senescent cells, to help prevent our own cells from transforming malignantly, and also to help us not have too much blood clotting, but not enough blood clotting where we don't bleed to death. So it's all a very interconnected and complex system. And it's like we're pressing on one little piece of like a a giant 
like glass class of like house of cards and we're pressing on like one card if we do it wrong we can kind of send things a little bit out of order and i think that that's what happens when we see these mace events and also the thromboembolic events that can happen with the jack inhibitors so overall reading this i was reassured by the fact that while these events may occur they tend to be lower incidence even in a highly risk enriched population so i think it, it behooves us to discuss these things with our patients and to make sure that they understand that there is some risk but also to help reassure them if they need that medication that the elevation of risk is relatively low and it is something that can be done properly with careful monitoring. The thing that stood out to me most saliently in this article is that they spent a lot of time talking about atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. And their main finding was that patients who have atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease are at increased risk of these major cardiovascular endpoints. And the patients who don't have atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease don't seem to have an increased risk if they're given a JAK inhibitor versus TNF inhibitor. So the thought probably is that you should screen your patients. And if they do not have atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, you can feel fairly good about giving them a JAK inhibitor over a TNF inhibitor. Again, this is this very specific patient population, rheumatoid arthritis, age 50 plus, blah, blah, blah. So especially with our patients, who I think are generally younger, healthier, and don't have these risk factors, if they don't have atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease on top of all that, you're probably in pretty good shape and you're probably not going to be causing some kind of major cardiovascular event. Well, and I think the other thing it brings forward too is the, the significance of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease because I feel like in the lay population, there's a little bit of a kind of hand-waving that happens with high cholesterol. Oh, it's just high cholesterol. And you know the problem with disregarding that is your vascular health is so central to the health of all of your organ systems and the entirety of your body. So, you know, absolutely focusing on that, paying attention to it, I think is very important. What does it mean to have atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease? How do you know if your patient had that? You probably can't say, hey, do you have atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease? Probably most of them are going to not know what the heck you're talking about. So just quickly before we end with this article here, here are the things that mean your patient has atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. If they've had a myocardial infarction, if they have unstable angina, if they have congestive heart disease, if they have stable angina, if they have had procedures such as coronary artery revascularization or coronary artery bypass grafting, if they have had cerebrovascular disease, such as an ischemic stroke or a transient ischemic attack, that counts. If they have carotid artery stenosis or carotid atherosclerosis on their diagnostic history. If they have had a procedure like a carotid endarterectomy to correct that. And if they have periphery arterial disease, like a peripheral artery thrombosis, an aortic atherosclerosis, intermittent claudication, and if they have had a procedure like peripheral artery angioplasty. So you might have to look at their diagnoses and their history, their procedure history to figure it out. Mm -hmm. I agree. All right. I want to talk about one more article before we finish up here. And this was a out of the JAD from 2014. So Woo! almost 10 years ago. So in addition to this being released in 2014, there was an Ebola outbreak in West Africa. Yeah. Iggy Azalea made a song called <laughs> Fancy. I'm so fancy. Yep. Guardians of the Galaxy was released. And I, I was an intern slash derm resident slash new dad. Aww. And maybe Jason Mathis was as well. He's faculty here at Utah and an author on this article, which is called A Retrospective Descriptive Study of Oral Azal Antifungal Agents in Patients with Patch Test Negative Head and Neck Predominant Atopic Dermatitis. In addition to Jason Mathis, who's awesome, by the way, authors include Benjamin Koffenberger and Matthew Zirwas out of Columbus, Ohio. Aww, Jason Matt. said he was a medical student when he wrote this and credits it for getting him into dermatology residency. And Matt's and I, an awesome human, so good people. I think Jeff Yu, who we saw talk at Hawaii Derm, talked about this issue which brought it to my attention and he's going to join us as a guest in our next episode so stay tuned listeners so this article describes of what they call a variant of atopic dermatitis that primarily affects the head and neck and doesn't respond super well to anti-inflammatories but responds reasonably well to systemic antifungals perhaps it's because it seems to be driven by yeast 
We've talked about stuff like this before, but it's kind of unclear if this is the same entity as the head and neck dermatitis that people on Dupilumab can get. We've mentioned that one once or twice on the podcast, and once or twice it's been like, maybe antifungals work, maybe this is yeast-related, or maybe being on Dupilumab sort of skews your immune milieu in one way so that you get more like allergic contact dermatitis to stuff you didn't get it to before. It's tough to say for sure, but this particular case series is got 24 patients in it who have had this head and neck dermatitis. And these patients apparently have much higher levels of IgE to normal Malassezia species. Malassezia globosa and another species I had never heard of before, Malassezia restricta, can apparently cause a Th2 cytokine release, which could explain this presentation. It kind of looks like seborrheic dermatitis, but it's more impressive and can extend further than you would expect semderb to extend. And this particular group of patients, these 24, were included in this series only after they got patch testing from somebody like Jeff Yu, and that was found to be negative. So sort of this recalcitrant, what looks kind of like atopic dermatitis, kind of sebderm on head and neck, patch test negative. What's going on? So perhaps it's this malassezia-driven thing. So these patients got itraconazole, 200 milligrams daily, which was preferred, the preferred azole agent because apparently it concentrates in the sebum. Though some of these patients, because of insurance reasons, had to be switched to fluconazole or to ketoconazole instead, three of those in each group, regardless of your azole, it was 200 milligrams daily, though. Hmm. 17 of these patients, so 70%, had significant improvement after two months on drug, and then half of them were transitioned to what the authors refer to as pulse dosing instead of 200 milligrams a day, 200 milligrams twice a week. Some of them relapsed, though, so the condition may need more long-term treatment. Why does it need long-term treatment when something like tinea versicolor is so easy to just get rid of? Well, they speculate that head and neck dermatitis is a hypersensitivity reaction to the yeast and not simply an overgrowth. A small quantity of the allergen is capable of perpetuating the dermatitis, and we believe that head and neck dermatitis requires a much higher degree of suppression than a disease of malassezia overgrowth like Sebderm or Tinea Versicolor. So give it a shot if you have a patient who's like this for monitoring. So I'm a little bit nervous about itraconazole just because I don't use it that much and it sounds like something transplant docs might use. But apparently pretty safe, might be expensive though. But these authors checked LFTs at baseline and every two months while patients were on daily dosing, but didn't check once they transitioned to pulse dosing. And the authors point out that if you do have a patient with recalcitrant to what seems like atopic dermatitis on the head and neck with negative patch testing, well, you were about to put them on some kind of systemic medication like an immunosuppressant or dupilumab these days probably wasn't available in 2014. So perhaps trying itraconazole first could save them from those sorts of medicines. I have some patients that I think have this problem too, where they're sensitized to malassezia and it's hard because that's a relatively uniform commensal on our skin. Like it's hard to get rid of it for any kind of permanence. But I have found that for those patients, ensuring that they're doing good um, microbiome care, which is something I've started talking about with my patients, like the care and feeding of the tiny zoo of little creatures that lives on every surface of your skin. You know, we like it to be a nice diverse zoo. We like there not to be any really pathological organisms in there. And we like there to be some balance. So for my patients that seem to struggle with this, I have found that um, microbiome considerate health, like skincare helps. And so there's a couple of um, probiotic, like cleansers and things like that that can be helpful some good moisturizers that can be beneficial to sort of rebalance the the skin microbiome. And I think those things are becoming more popular, which I'm very happy to see because the microbiome of any organ system significantly affects its function and its health. And so I think kind of attending to the microbial imbalance that can sort of trigger and perpetuate these things is important. But I'm very uh, very grateful for this article because it can be a massively difficult thing to treat. So well done, authors. Michelle, if you can successfully get people better with over-the-counter washes and creams and stuff and not have to put them on azoles, that would be great. If you Mm -hmm. can do it, you should publish it. (laughs) Well, it's more like a team approach, right? So we use it as a maintenance thing. I talk to my patients about 
how we deal with wildfires. I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and wildfires are present in my mind whenever I'm any place that has mountains and trees in it. Um, we get grass fires out here in Lubbock, Texas. Don't have a lot of mountains, don't have a lot of trees, but things, you know, catch on fire. And so we talk about, okay, in the emergent situation, you put the fire out. So that's where the traditional pharmaceuticals often come into play because they're more powerful and they're quicker. Natural things can work, but they're gentler and they're slower, which is part of the reason why they're actually safer in, over long-term use. But if you have a fire, you still need to put the fire out. So I tell the patients, first, we're going to put out the fire, and then we're going to do the things to prevent the fire from coming back. So we're going to like clean out the underbrush and you know, raking the forest. I know people got made fun for that, but that's actually a real thing. And it's just removing like dry um, debris that's ready to catch on fire from a forest. So you have to you know, do a little bit of... Um, gentle management to try to prevent the setup that caused the fire in the first place from coming back. And I guess it's timely to talk about incendiary things, since if you were at the AAD, you may know that part of the exhibit hall caught on fire, but everyone was fine from what I understand. And hopefully that will be a memorable and singular event in the course of history of the AAD conferences. Well, I don't think I should tell my patients I'm going to clean out your underbrush, but I <laughs> can hear, I hear what you're saying. Oh, no. Are there specific products you want to mention? We're not sponsored by anybody yet, so we can talk about whatever we want. Okay, well, you know, I think that the most important things are making sure that you have like gentle skin balancing um, kind of topicals and, and things that aren't going to actively intervene with your microbiome that you're trying to reestablish. So there's actually a skincare brand that makes a probiotic wash. It's not terribly expensive. I think it's called Tula. I'm looking it up really quick, but the um, internet at the good old health sciences center in beautiful sunny Lubbock, Texas is breathtakingly slow. So I believe that's what it's called. And then um, there's also products that are out um, that have a sort of micro micro balance or something in there that is a constituent of some topical moisturizers that are gaining popularity for treating patients that might have microbial disturbance in their microbiome because of things like atopic dermatitis. So lots of different options for those kinds of things over the counter. We also talk about things that might make it worse. Like some people want to go supernatural, not supernatural, like, woo, I'm flying, but like very natural. We'll put it that way. Um, and so they might try something that they have in their kitchen, like olive oil or something. We have to have that discussion that that's actually food for the yeast and, you know, probably could cause a little bit more worsening of the condition in some patients. But I think that considering those things, especially with um, like cleansers and things that might be more harsh, harsh to uh, the microbiome is important. All right. Well, that's all we got time for today. So thanks for hanging out with us today, listeners, and learning with us. Today we learned about hand versus palm surface area. Perhaps the palm is about 0.5% of the body surface in an adult. We learned that health insurance companies may not always have their insured patients' best interests at heart. We learned that the risks of malignancy and of major cardiovascular endpoints in the oral surveillance study about JAK inhibitors perhaps can be targeted to specific patient populations who already have risk factors for those things. And we learned that you might try itraconazole for patients with recalcitrant head and neck dermatitis. Thanks, Michael Birdsall, for joining us today. And speaking of Michael Birdsall, thanks to him and all members of Team Dermosphere for all of your help. We've got some great students who help us out with the podcast, and we thank them very much for what they do. And our team includes, in addition to Michael Birdsall, Morgan Dykeman, Guy Kusecki, Eleonora Marcacci, Aparna Nayak, Nehadeo, Haley Walsh, and Angie Wong. Thanks so much, guys. Team Dermosphere, we salute you. One of the things that you guys do is keep our social media moving along. So you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can also find us on our website, dermospherepodcast.com, which has a link to all of the original articles and includes our entire archive. We also once upon a time had another podcast, which you can still access. That one is called SkinCast. It is more directed at the lay person who's interested in learning how to take the very best care of the skin they're in. And we cover usually a single or two related topics per episode. They're about 15 to 20 minutes long. And we've covered things ranging from psoriasis to acne to allergic contact dermatitis from Halloween makeup to the influence of diet on our skin and hair health. And so it's a very nice um, patient-directed podcast that's a little bit easier to consume for people who don't love the deep dives into the derm literature. 
And hey, listeners, I wanted to let you all know that if you feel like visiting beautiful Sun Valley, Idaho in September, you might see me there. So every year, I am the course director for a course called the Practical Dermatology for Primary Care course, which is from the University of Utah. And it is going to be in September, and it is going to be in Idaho. And this year, we are combining it with the Intermountain Dermatology Society meeting, which is specific for dermatologists. So my course, which we call the PDPC course, is intended for primary care providers. And we'd love to see you there. And if you want to learn more about specific dermatology stuff, then the Intermountain Dermatology Society is also having a meeting where they have sessions specifically for dermatologists. So come check us out. And the best way to do it is by following a link in the show notes, or you can just Google practical dermatology for primary care, University of Utah, and you can find us there too. All right, guys, thanks so much for hanging out with us today. And we will see you in two weeks. <laughs>